0: It is a privilege to bring God's Word uh, to you uh, this afternoon from Ephesians chapter 2. I invite you to turn in God's Word to Ephesians chapter 2. And we're going to park ourselves in uh, the first three verses there of Ephesians chapter uh, 2. Just a quick summation, children, if you're looking at the bulletin insert, from yesterday, and there are a few copies still uh, out in the back and fr- uh, on, the, on the table there, uh, we've covered two of the doctrines, of uh, two of the canons of the canons of Dort. We covered yesterday divine predestination, which is uh, unconditional. It's not conditioned on anything in us. It is conditioned only on the good pleasure and will of God, and that is the you of TULIP. And then we consider in the second session the design of the atonement, that it is limited in its scope. It is meant to accomplish that which the Father has planned, which is the salvation of the elect. And uh, later on uh, this afternoon, we'll consider how that work that was planned by the Father and accomplished by the Son is now applied by the Spirit in time uh, as we consider the doctrine of regeneration. But, of course, uh, the reason why any of this is necessary and important is because of what man is. Man is dead. Man is corrupt. And his corruption is not partial. It is rather Total. That is why we speak in the first uh, in the first letter of the acronym of total depravity. The T of tulip stands for total depravity. So you, we we have uh, total depravity, unconditional election, limited atonement, irresistible grace, and perseverance of the saints. Uh, later at the end of our time together this afternoon. So tulip. Um, We want this to be uh, understandable to you children and not a uh, a mystery novel that uh, keeps you in suspense. So today, right now, we're looking at the T of TULIP, total depravity. With that in mind, let's look at God's Word. Ephesians chapter 2, first three verses. I'm reading from the ESV. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, Let's go to the Lord in prayer, shall we, one more time. Father, we come to you and we come to your word this afternoon, and we ask that you would speak for we are listening, we are hearing. Father, do grant us listening ear and a hearing heart that we would, Father, not only hear and understand your word, but that, Father, we would take you at your word, that we would believe you, that we would live in light of your word, that we would understand our fallen condition apart from Jesus Christ, but understand the redemption that Jesus Christ has come to accomplish for us, and that work that is now applied to us by the Spirit's power. Help us, we pray, Lord, to not be masters over your word, but to be mastered by your word in this hour. Grant us humility and grant us a song of praise to always worship you, the God of our salvation, knowing that you have had grace and mercy and compassion upon us, miserable and dead sinners, and all of this for your glory and honor, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. I want to consider these brief verses with you. This afternoon. And I want to take these verses in turn and, and really do uh, consider not just the verses, but the words that Paul here writes. Paul has a very uh, characteristic trait, which he packs uh, a lot in a few verses. And so, what we want to do is kind of like an accordion, just uh, expand and stretch out what Paul is saying here and to consider each phrase in turn. Paul begins here in many translations with the condition of man. The summary of man is that man is dead. Man is dead. Now, there are many images we can gather from Scripture. There are many motifs that uh, describe man. Man, of course, apart from Christ, is blind, man is lame, man is deaf. Man is sick. And yet, the one summation of of all of those descriptors is that man is dead. It's death. Uh, Who more than a corpse, a dead man, is blind, is deaf, is lame, is sick? Man is dead, Paul tells us. This is what we were. This is what you were. Ephesian Christians. We were unresponsive to God. We were unresponsive to the things of God. Just like a corpse would have been unresponsive to Paul's preaching. Man is dead. Man is dead, however, in his sins and trespasses. Man's present death is a result of original sin, a departing from God's law. That's what sin is. That's what trespass is. That's how we are to understand these words. As as, as words that describe our relationship to God's law. And this really is Adam's gift to mankind. Each of us receives a gift from our father, Adam. We are born sinners. We are inclined to evil from conception on. We not only fail to keep God's standard and fall short of it, we're dead in our sins, but we trespass God's law. We transgress God's law. We openly violate it. We have a transgressive nature that seeks to do what is wrong, that seeks to push the envelope always. This is not how God, however, made man. The Heidelberg Catechism Tells us, and the canons of Dort, excuse me, tell us in section one of the third and fourth heads of doctrine. If you have your copy of the canons with you, we read about how God made man. page 106 in the back of the Psalter. We're told that man was originally created, formed, after the image of God. His understanding was adorned with a true and saving knowledge of his Creator and of spiritual things. His heart and will were upright, all his affections pure, and the whole man was holy but revolting from God by the instigation of the devil and abusing the freedom of his own will, he forfeited these excellent gifts. And we'll pause there for now. Notice that the canons are very clear. As Scripture is very clear that the fault in our corruption, the fault of our depravity does not lie with God. It lies with us. God didn't create us corrupt. God didn't create us predisposed to what is evil. God created us good. He created us with a true knowledge of who He is, with righteousness, with holiness, as Ephesians and Colossians tell us. He created us with a a desire to serve God, with a will, a disposition to do what is right, to do what is honorable, to, to do that which is altogether lovely and honoring to God, our Creator. In all of our emotions, we were pure. The whole man, we're told, by the canons of Dort three, four, one. The whole man was holy. Man was made to know God, his Creator, to serve God, his Creator, and to love God forever. And yet that's not the world we find. The world we find is a world of great fallenness, beginning in Genesis 3 and down throughout history, throughout all the generations. The fall has rendered us lawless and dead. We are dead on arrival. D-O-A. We are dead and we love sin because of our death and our deadness. And so we, we sink further into our own death. That's what Paul is getting at in verse 2. Not only were you dead in the trespasses and sins. These were trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Man's deadness is not a one-time event. Walking here, as in all of Scripture, is a synonym for living. Man without Christ is the walking dead. He lives in active rebellion against God. It's not a one-time punctiliar point in time in the past no, actively now man rebels against God he has no desire for God but only a desire for evil he is unable to turn to God that's what we find continuing on in the Heidelberg Catechism Uh, Heidelberg 3-4 I'm sorry, Canons of Dort 3-4, I have Heidelberg here for some reason Canons um, 3-4 Article 3, section 3, Therefore all men are conceived in sin, and by nature children of wrath, incapable of saving good, prone to evil, dead in sin, and in bondage thereto. And without the regenerating grace of the Holy Spirit, they are neither able nor willing to turn to God to reform the depravity of their nature, or to dispose themselves to reformation. This is an ecumenical gathering, so I feel compelled to quote also from the Westminster Confession. Westminster 6.4 says the same. This is the unbroken testimony of the Reformation and the Reformers and the Reformed churches. Westminster 6.4 says the same. It says, From this original corruption, whereby we are utterly indisposed, disabled, and made opposite to all good, And wholly inclined, W H O L L Y, wholly inclined to all evil, to proceed, do proceed all actual transgressions. That is to say, that all of man, as we heard yesterday in the first session from our brother, every part of us is dead to God. Every part of us is in rebellion against God. Total depravity doesn't mean that we are as bad as we could be. We're not absolutely depraved, as our brother mentioned yesterday. But we are completely, through and through, corrupted. It means that all that man has, all that man is, man conscripts, man uses against God. And we see this particularly in another portion in God's Word. Romans chapter 3, if you have your Bibles with you, you can open them. Romans 3, verse 10 and following. Here, Paul, as he's mounting the final piece of his argument in the first part of Romans, the letter to the church in Rome, he's, he's convincing the church there. He's persuading the church there from not only experience from reality, but from God's Word That both Jew and Gentile are fallen. Jew and Gentile are in need of the gospel of righteousness. And here, Paul quotes a number, series of texts from the Old Testament. We are both under sin. Jew and Gentile, verse 10 says, As it is written, None is righteous, no not one, no one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. Now, here, Paul in Romans is, is having uh, an imaginary, the commentators say, an imaginary conversation with uh, an interlocutor, with a conversation partner. And, and the conversation partner here perhaps has said to Paul, "Maybe, maybe someone seeks for God, Paul. No, not one. Perhaps somewhere in the remote South Asian Pacific Islands, there is one who seeks for God. Perhaps, Paul. No, there is not one, Paul says. He shuts the door completely. The negations just cascade from the lips of Paul. None is righteous. No, not one. No one, no one, no one. And then Paul continues, verse 13. Notice what. What man does with his body, notice what he has been given, and yet what he uses his body for. Verse 13, their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood, in their paths are ruin and misery, and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before Their eyes, their throat, their tongues, their lips, their mouth, their feet, their eyes. Proverbs talks about the hands that are swift to shed blood. Six abominations. Six things the Lord hates. Seven are an abomination to Him. All that man is, all that man has, is used not for the glory of God, not for the advancement of the kingdom of God, not for the well-being of the church, not in love of neighbor, but for self, for sin, for death, for destruction. In my time as a teacher in New York City, I taught for a time in the public school system. It, we, we would see certain hard cases of students. You'd give them a, a notepad, and they'd just throw it back at the teacher. Give them a pen. Didn't matter, threw it back. They would take a chair if they could and they would throw it at fellow students, a bag that their parents had given them, right? Didn't mean anything. And that's, that's what we are, beloved, right? It's easy to, to be convinced of this doctrine. It's one of the easiest doctrines to cover, especially in our day. But this is not just something that affects the kids in the South Bronx, this is us. We we, we are given so much, and what do we do? We throw it back to God, our Creator. We throw it back to our neighbor. It's important to realize that because of the fall, man still bears the image of God. It's, it's, It's a mirror that's been fragmented into a thousand different pieces. The, the, the view that we have of God in man is very distorted, and yet he, he does retain vestiges of the image of God. Man does not stop inventing. Man continues to develop culture and cultural artifacts. Man continues to be endowed by his Creator with intelligence, with mental faculties, with, with the ability of articulation. But that's not the issue. The issue is that because of man's fundamental rebellion against God, he uses all of those things against God. There are very smart people, beloved, smarter than you and I. IQs through the roof who hate God. Because that's what man is. He is corrupted totally, entirely. There is no part of man that has been left untainted, including his mind. We, we evangelize, as do you here. We, we seek to witness to unbelievers the gospel of Christ, the good news that Jesus Christ, the King of all, has re entered his creation to take back what is rightly his as the rightful heir of all the nations. And he calls all men everywhere to repent. And he is willing to give forgiveness full and free to all sinners. But we must always remember, beloved, that Christianity is reasonable. There there are a thousand and one reasons for the faith. The whole world is a a billboard for the glory of God, it shouts forth the glory of God and his wisdom and his design and his, his beauty. And yet, we must never make the mistake of thinking that we can have a kind of bare appeal to the mind of man. Because man is corrupt even in his mind. The Canons of Dort, 3-4, section 2, tell us this. I'm sorry, uh, article 1, it says... And on the contrary, so he forfeited these excellent gifts, and on the contrary entailed on himself blindness of mind, horrible darkness, vanity, perverseness of judgment, became wicked, rebellious, and obdurate in heart and will, and impure in his affections. He has a blindness of mind, a blindness of mind. In other translations of the canons, it says... Blindness, terrible darkness, futility and distortion of judgment in his minds. If you're back at Ephesians, look one, uh, two chapters over at Ephesians chapter four. And Paul tells us that the man's mind has been affected. There are the noetic effects of sin. Ephesians chapter four, verse 17, 18 and 19. Now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds, in the emptiness of their minds, the vanity. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them. Due to their hardness of heart, they have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. Notice what Paul says here, right? They they are darkened, they're alienated, they're futile in their thinking. Verse 18, though, due to their hardness of heart, man's fallen mind has a pre commitment to what his heart desires. Man desires what is dishonorable. He chooses against the goodness of God and the moral order of creation. And so what does man do in his mind? Well, he invents all manner of sophisticated theories about the origin of man, about the nature of the afterlife, about the meaning of life. On and on and on, philosophizing in a kind of sophist manner. Knowing and yet not knowing because all of this intellectual firepower is in the service of death. That's why in our day, I hope that it's become very apparent that appeals to data and to science cannot resolve any moral problem. And we've seen this for the last two and a half years. The data, the science, as if the data is bare and is naked and not interpreted by fallen, corrupted man. No, we are corrupted through and through, and we use all that we have, all that we have been given by God, our Creator, against God. And against our fellow man, we are, as Paul says in Ephesians 2, dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. That's the summation of our condition. But notice then what follows here. It gets worse. Paul tells us that we are not just dead, but there's, there's a kind of darkness that's built in the life of man. He's conceived in sin and in iniquity. And he's born this way. And yet, as he lives, he's enslaved, first of all, we're told, to the world. You were following the course of this world. You were under the control, the current, the pull of this age. Like a rib current that just pulls a swimmer farther and farther away from the shore we are as it were loyal followers of the dominant system of antichrist and anti-christian values that pervade this creation that Paul and the biblical writers call the world we are committed apart from Jesus Christ to the sinful project that has occurred since the fall to try to live apart from God but to live against God. And we do so together. Sin is not just a a privatized individual matter. Sin here is a community project, Paul is telling us. Dead people patting each other on the back against God. This is Babel, Redux. We build monuments into the heavens to, to try to reach God, to try to usurp His divinity, to make a name for ourselves, to save ourselves. And all of this we, we congratulate ourselves over as a testament to the profundity of our ingenuity and our creativity and our strength and hope and the human spirit and all the, the other hallmark words that can be used. What does God tell us is truly happening? Romans one thirty two. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. We, We are so delusional. We are so self-deceived. We are so blinded. God tells us that we know. We know we deserve to die because of our sin, because of the abominable things we choose to do. And yet, not only do we do them, but we give hearty approval to others who practice those things. We give each other Academy Awards and Presidential Medals of Freedom. and, And we love ourselves. We love each other because we're convincing ourselves that it's okay, that it's alright. Man in his sin, you see, is caught up in any and every ideology of the world, just following the course, the rip current of the world. Man in his sin forms coalitions with others. And, and, and you see this in our day. It's almost, we see such a proliferation of this. And what's interesting here, the irony of sin is that all these coalitions are being formed, irrespective of how different the individual belief systems may be. Right? The capitalists and the socialists, Republicans, Democrats, you know, whoever it is. Because they have one thing in common, many times. Ignoring and rejecting Jesus Christ. The Gospel accounts in God's Word tell us right, that such was the hatred of of the leaders of Israel towards Christ, the Son of God, that Herodians and Pharisees joined forces against Christ. These were not likely allies. This was an unlikely alliance. And they put their differences aside. Right, The Herodians are, are part of the establishment. Part of the elite. The Pharisees, the teachers of the people, the, the, the leaders of the populace. And they hated one another. They hated each other's guts. And yet, they make a truce. Because there's a greater foe. There's a greater enemy. And it's Jesus Christ presented in His glory incarnate to them. We follow apart from Jesus Christ, the course of this world. When dead people assemble assemble together, you have a community of death. You have a kingdom of death. And every kingdom has a king. And this kingdom is no different, Paul tells us. Back to Ephesians 2. We follow the course of this world and we're following the prince of the power of the air, Satan himself, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. This is a kingdom of death ruled by Satan. And and where does Satan exercise his kingship? Where is his rule found? Well, it's found in the sons of disobedience. It's a kingdom of disobedience toward God, headed by the father of disobedience, the father of lies, Satan, with children who populate that kingdom, who love all that transgresses God's moral order. We have to understand, beloved, time and again, because it is, it is the primitive lie in Genesis 3. We have to understand the nature of what happened in the fall. When, when Adam disobeyed God, he, he didn't go from slavery, right? the slavery of God, of Yahweh, the cruel tyranny of this God who has told you you can't eat of this fruit, of this tree, of the knowledge of good and evil, He didn't go from slavery to unbounded freedom. Right? To think that way is to buy the lie of Satan, of Genesis 3, what what is recorded there for us, from Satan. That was Satan's lie. You know, this God that you serve. And we could say a lot of true things about him, but you've got to admit, he's a bit of a miser. He's a cheapskate. He's holding out something. He he doesn't want to give you everything. He said, don't eat. What you need to know about this God, Satan says, is that he is no God at all. He refuses you to be God. And that is, of course, the lie. The lie focuses on the prohibition and and refuses to see the, the bounty of God's creation that had been given to Adam and Eve. They had been given the world. No, when Adam refused to obey God, he didn't go from slavery to freedom. He went from the opposite, from freedom. Freedom in Christ, freedom in God, to love God His Maker, to serve Him all the days of His life. He went from joy and happiness and such bliss that we we can't even imagine. He went from that high point to slavery. He despised the freedom of God and became subject to the devil's tyranny. And brothers and sisters, Satan is a vicious tyrant who enslaves his subjects, as 2 Timothy says, and takes men captive to do his will. The Heidelberg Catechism alludes to this, refers to this rather very explicitly, very plainly, in the first question and answer: What is your only comfort in life and in death? that I am not my own. I am not my own. I I rather belong, body and soul, in life and in death to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ, who has fully paid for all my sins with His precious blood and has delivered me, has set me free, has, has rescued me from the tyranny of the devil. These are profound words encapsulated by the Heidelberger. Either we are in Christ Jesus, and we belong to Him completely, or we belong to ourselves. In which case, we have no comfort. In which case, we have no joy, we have no hope, we have no salvation. Either we are in Christ, and belong to Him, body and soul, in life and in death. Or we belong to ourselves, which is to say, we belong to Satan. When people say they want to be their own man, their own woman, they want to be the arbiters and the adjudicators of their lives. When you hear that from friends or coworkers or classmates, or perhaps even from family, neighbors, and friends, what you're hearing is not a commitment to the self. What you're hearing is a commitment to live under the tyranny of Satan. To love yourself, to worship yourself is to live under the tyranny of Satan. There is no neutrality, beloved. We are either subjects of the true king or we are subjects to the false pretender, Satan. Paul continues in verse 3, Not only are we enslaved to the world and to the devil, here he completes the triad of slavery we are enslaved to our own nature. The bondage of man is not just something external, it's man himself. What are the traits of the sons of disobedience? We're told, among whom we all once lived, and the passions of our flesh carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Man, apart from Jesus Christ, and so important, I keep referring back to that important qualifier, apart from Jesus Christ, man is a city without walls. He's he's open to being invaded from every hostile force. He's simply following the world, simply following Satan, simply following his own heart. The Bible tells us, Trust not your heart. Trust not. Lean not on your own understanding. This is the very thing that man, apart from Jesus Christ, does. Leans on his own understanding. Committed to the world, committed to Satan, committed to his own desires. He carries out the desires of body and mind. Whatever he wants, he does. Whatever comes to his mind, he, he, he acts that out. Man believes in himself. He trusts in Himself. He loves Himself. He loves the life of autonomy. Whatever He desires, He pursues. He seeks to trust anything. He he really is given to a life of trust. But anything but God. Modern man, very sophisticated, very, very driven by much understanding and learning. So superstitious. There's been... In our day, and many have pointed this out, many observers, both an increase in the secularism of our day, no place for God, privatized Christian religion, as well as an increase in superstitious belief. Everyone is spiritual because everyone loves him or herself we reinvent God in our image. We love lies. We, we buck authority. We neglect our neighbor. We envy our neighbor. We kill our neighbor, our neighbor. Because we can't kill God, but if we could, we would. And in fact, God tells us that we did. When Jesus came down to earth as a man, and all the while as man hugs himself and loves himself and worships himself, he becomes more chained to himself. And man does this because, as Paul says in verse three, he is by nature a child of wrath. This cancer is in us by nature. We we can't take it out. We're we're children of wrath. We deserve God's punishment. We're not born inheriting God's goodness. We are born as heirs, but heirs of God's of God's just anger and judgments. This is what is perhaps important to note of the phrase, Christianity is not a religion, it's a relationship. There's of course something very true there, that we are called as believers, as followers of Jesus Christ, to have a personal relationship with our Lord to know the Lord, to serve the Lord, not just to know about Him, not just to love things about Him, to have notions in our head about Christ, but to truly love the Lord. And yet, isn't it not true as well that everyone is in a relationship with God? You are either an adopted son through Jesus Christ or a child of wrath upon whom the wrath of God abides. Everyone is related to God in one of two ways. It's either a relationship characterized by His grace and favor, or a relationship characterized by His wrath and condemnation because of our sin and our corruption. So what you see here, beloved, is not man free Able to use his free will. Able to choose from a neutral standpoint whether to serve God or whether to hate God. No. Nothing of the sort. Man is not free. Man has no free will. Man, rather, has a hook in his nose and he follows his masters, the world, Satan, and himself. He has a will, but not free He has a will that needs to be freed only by the grace of God. Paul concludes verse 3 by saying, we were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. And he alludes to this at the beginning of the verse, among whom we all once lived. This is who we were, beloved. We, We were not better, we were not worse than man the rest of mankind we were mankind apart from jesus christ apart from his saving grace we are adam's children so canon say in head of doctrine number 1 we were taken out of the entire human race out of the mass of sinners as we conclude our time together i leave you simply with two words from verse 4 what is the hope that we have? If this is what man is, if this is his situation, if this is his dire need, if, if this is the urgency and the desperation that he confronts because he is dead in his sins and trespasses, then, then what is the hope? What salvation do we have? Verse 4. But God. But God. Martin Lloyd-Jones preached an entire sermon on those two words he says that this phrase but God encapsulates the gospel we are following the course of the world of Satan and of the flesh but God we are dead on our way to greater death and eternal death but God we are without hope we are without God in the world but God corrupted by our sin condemned by God And yet, God, who is rich in mercy, who loved us with such great love, He made us alive together with Christ. Those whom the Father loved in eternity past are those for whom the Son accomplishes salvation in His death in history, and are those to whom the Spirit applies the work of Christ in time. But God... He is our hope, and He alone is our salvation. And we know that because we we know something of what we are apart from Him. And that's of the many lessons we can take away from our time together in God's Word. This is perhaps the most important. We'll never never understand, beloved, the full greatness of God's saving work for us until we begin to see what man's problem is really is. If man's problem is skin-deep, then a skin-deep, a superficial band-aid solution is going to help. But what if man suffers from something worse? Right? Oftentimes, you know, we hear in our day, you know, the problem in our day is we don't have enough money going to the schools, right? We need better education, better schools, We need better neighborhoods, more law enforcement. We need more civic involvement. No. Because that's not the heart of man's problem. The heart of man's problem is man's heart. We will never understand the full greatness of God's saving work for us until we begin to see what man's problem really is. He is corrupted through and through. Conceived and born in sin And so we must say, beloved, what can wash away my sins? What can make me whole again? Not superficial solutions, not man-made saviors. What can do the work, what can affect the work of salvation? Nothing, nothing but the blood of Jesus. Amen. Let us pray. Our Father and our God, we do ask and pray that You would humble us, Father, to know Your glory and Your holiness. Father, to know our own condition. Father, even as we have been redeemed, washed, and cleansed by Christ's blood and spirit yet Lord we see vestiges in our hearts we see that enemy within still oh father that we would seen ourselves father always run to the cross of Christ and take refuge in Christ's promise to save us that father by the spirit's power we would move farther and farther away from the man given to us in Adam and move closer and draw nearer, more and more to the new man, Jesus Christ. Father, grant us joy and contentment and courage and strength, Father, to live Your Word and to be about the witness of this Word, of this Word of life, the Word of truth, to a watching world around us that desperately needs Jesus. Father, hear us for these things. In his name, amen.